What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Listeners, and welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Time for a week in review with our podcasts. Last Sunday, Paul and I brought you the Moody Massacre. Investigators claim that Scott Moody shot his mom, his grandparents, and his friends before turning the gun on himself. But there's a problem. His sister was also shot, and she claims he had nothing to do with this. Now, let's move on to last Wednesday's Ohio Mysteries Backroads with Dan and Mike. They go into the story of Schneider Park in Akron, Ohio, and the mysteries it holds because of its past. Paula has covered this before, but Dan and Mike take you through the backroads of this story in their own very unique way. They have the ability to take you to the scene and break down the mysteries that lie beneath. Lastly, before we get into today's story, I want to thank everyone out there for your support. The best way to help support Paula, Dan, Mike, and myself is to subscribe and share the podcast on your social media and with your friends. All of us at Ohio Mysteries appreciate that you have made us one of the top podcasts in Ohio, and we still have plenty of room to grow. Thank you for helping us with that now. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. The Holocaust is without a doubt one of the most horrific episodes in human history. I say horrific, but there isn't really a word strong enough to express what it was. Six million Jews, men, women, children, imprisoned, tortured, and systematically killed by Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime during World War II. If you're young, it might feel like ancient history to you, but it wasn't really that long ago. You only have to be in your 70s to have been born during that period. Every once in a while, something happens to remind us how we are still living in the shadows of the Holocaust. One example, the Nazis were notorious for stealing paintings and other valuables from the Jews they murdered some 80 years ago. And even today, an international effort is underway to find and return those timeless valuables to the heirs of those victims. Ohio became part of the story just last month 
when New York authorities seized a painting from a museum at Oberlin College in Lorraine County, alleging it as property that had been stolen by the Nazis. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to bring some history to life, as it were, by learning about the man from whom the painting had been taken. And what a story we found. So, while authorities continue to sort out the still-evolving mystery of how the man's art collection found its way across the Atlantic and into Ohio, let's go back and meet the colorful, the talented, and the unflinching Franz Grunbaum. Franz Grunbaum, he spent his life using the name Fritz, so that's what we'll call him, was born in 1880 in Moravia. Today, we know it as the Czech Republic. He, his two brothers, Rudolf and Paul, and his sister Lily, had a carefree childhood growing up in Moravia's capital of Brun. Their dad was an art dealer, So it's not surprising that Fritz grew up with a passion for the work of the talented people that his father celebrated and supported. However, at first, it seemed Fritz's path was going in a very different direction. He wanted to study law. He enrolled at the University of Vienna, where he boarded with other Jewish migrants and worked as a journalist to help support himself. But Fritz apparently gave up his interest in the law. He earned the equivalent of a master's degree, but he needed a doctorate to practice law, and for whatever reason, he did not take that next step. Instead, he returned home to Brune. He started a literary association, using his charm and humor to lure many famous contemporary writers to the city and he paid his own bills by serving as a legal advisor to the town's finance and police departments. But Vienna beckoned him back, and in 1906, he returned to become master of ceremonies at the new cabaret Hola, which is German for hell. It was located in the basement of the Theater an der Vienna and opened on October the 7th of that year, Fritz wrote operettas and songs, performed rhymed monologues, and was very popular for his comedy routine. Now, anti-Semitic behavior was not invented by Adolf Hitler. It existed long before him. And in 1907, while Fritz was on stage presenting at the cabaret, an Austrian officer in the audience heckled him using anti-Semitic slurs. Grunbaum stopped his performance, got down from the podium, and slapped the officer in his face. The officer left the theater, but Fritz later revealed that he and the officer agreed to a duel. They fought with sabers and pistols. I'm not sure how you use both of those weapons at the same time. And Fritz was wounded, though he lived to tell the tale and didn't seem any worse for it. Soon after that incident, Fritz left Vienna for Berlin. That was the other cabaret metropolis. 
and there he became master of ceremonies at the Chat Noir Cabaret. I found a German language profile of Fritz that, once I used an online translator to read it, said this of his move to Berlin. The Viennese were outraged that they had lost their new favorite after such a short time. Berliners didn't yet know what talent they were now welcoming to their city, but they were soon to recognize it. When he didn't speak, he seemed like a pitiful creature, a nothing lost between the scenes. But when he opened his mouth, it was a fireworks of the brain as he constantly shot his jokes and bon mots with over-the-top logic into the surprised audience. Well, in 1915, after World War I broke out, Fritz put this rising career on pause to volunteer for service. Jewish soldiers were considered particularly patriotic as they seemed keen to prove their Austrianness. After some basic training, Fritz was sent to the Italian front, where he was a platoon leader in some very bloody battles. He was disillusioned by his terrible experiences, and he wrote a series of pacifist poems that he dared not publish until after the war was over. soon as he retired his soldier's uniform, Fritz returned to the theater, traveling extensively throughout Europe and becoming quite famous in those cabaret circles, even appearing in 10 films. He was also more politically engaged. In 1925, he began a weekly column in an Austrian paper, calling for intellectual freedom to be guaranteed. He put out a call for what he said was a spiritual Vienna, and he explained it this way. The essence of the spirit is, above all, freedom, which is now at risk and which we feel obliged to protect. The struggle for a higher humanity and the fight against inertia and desolation will always find us ready. Some famous people signed that article in support of his words, including the world-renowned psychologists Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler. In 1930, Fritz turned 50, and a birthday article about him noted that everywhere the entertainer traveled, he preached humor and wisdom through his operettas, comedies, reviews, couplets, and pop songs. The story said, So he has been on the board for 25 years now, fighting with a smile on his face against evil, stupidity, and stubbornness. Of course, we know now Fritz was right about what he saw coming. In 1933, the Nazis seized power in Germany, and Jewish performers were forbidden from performing. Many actors and writers moved from Germany to Austria to keep working. People in Vienna felt relatively safe, Even Fritz did, saying, I haven't done anything to anyone. Why should someone do something to me? But in March of 1938, 
the German army marched into Austria, and within two weeks, the show Fritz was appearing in was closed. His brilliant career was over. Fritz and his wife, Lily, attempted to flee to his homeland of Czechoslovakia, but they were caught. Initially, he was imprisoned in Vienna as a political undesirable, not a Jew. His political activism was well-known, second only to his acting career. He was considered a hated enemy of the National Socialist Party since he had spent years publicly making fun of developments in Germany. But it didn't really matter. Political prisoners ended up in the same place. On May the 24th, 1938, Fritz was separated from Lilly and deported to the Dachau concentration camp. He was later sent to Buchenwald for a couple of years, then back to Dachau. By all accounts, Fritz tried to keep his trademark humor alive. Surrounded by other concentration camp inmates, he would quip on the effectiveness of starvation as a cure for diabetes. Once, when a guard refused his request for soap, Fritz replied that those who did not have enough money for soap had no business running a concentration camp. Fritz often performed for other long-suffering prisoners of the camp, even as it was clear that death was coming for him. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On New Year's Eve of 1940, while Fritz was in alarmingly poor health, he revived enough to give a show. An MC introduced him by name, but Fritz corrected the announcer and introduced himself by the number that had been branded onto his forearm, as had been done to all Jews. Then he broke out into a spirited and funny show. He collapsed afterward and lingered until January the 14th, 1941, when he died. Now back at home, Fritz's wife, Lily, was expelled from one apartment to the next. On July the 15th, 1938, she was forced out of the apartment that she had shared with Fritz for 12 happy years. The apartment was filled with the artwork that she and Fritz had collected in their lives, reportedly some 400 pieces. While Fritz was imprisoned at Dachau, he was forced to give his wife power of attorney and she, in turn, was forced to surrender the art collection to the Third Reich. So, when Lily was evicted from there, she had little to take with her. The Nazis had already relieved her of the entire collection. Lily found shelter with her friend, Elsa Klauber, for a time. Then they were both forced into a crammed apartment complex next door to Gestapo headquarters. 
On October the 5th, 1942, more than a year after her beloved Fritz had died, Lily and Elsa were both deported to the Mali Trosnets concentration camp. Lily died there four days later. By some estimates, historians say the Nazis stole 650,000 works of art between 1933 and 1945. They took them from museums, from dissidents, and many from Jewish families who they arrested and then killed. Hitler deemed some of the modern styles of art degenerate and had them destroyed. Others he sold off to help finance his invasions across Europe. People have been trying for decades to locate and return stolen art and other valuables to the families from whom they were taken. It's been an uphill battle, for the most part, since so much time has passed, and individuals and institutions that are in possession of those pieces, many of them worth millions, have been reluctant to return them. To help legal claims proceed in America, President Barack Obama signed into law the Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act in 2016. The bill extended the statute of limitations for the stolen artwork to six years from the date that the art in question is identified and located. Using that law... Authorities came to Ohio in mid-September of this year with warrants in hand, and the name Fritz Grunbaum was once again in the news. Even 82 years after his death, heirs have been actively searching for his art collection, which is presumed to be scattered around the world. I couldn't find any stories to explain who exactly the heirs are. No biographies of Fritz mention children, But he was married three times. Lily was his third wife. Some stories recently also mentioned nephews. The heirs, whoever they may be, have actually been trying for a quarter of a century to locate the art. In his collection, Fritz owned about 80 pieces from Austrian expressionist Egan Schiele, and investigators were able to track quite a few of them. In the 1950s, many Sheila drawings and paintings from Fritz's collection surfaced on the art market in the possession of a Swiss dealer, Everhard Kornfeld. Those pieces were later sold to an American dealer, Otter Keller, who had a gallery in New York. And Keller sold them to a variety of buyers, widely dispersing them. As they found each piece... Fritz's heirs filed civil actions in state and federal courtrooms, trying to get them back. In one case in New York, the judge ruled that a couple of pieces in dispute could not have been voluntarily signed away by Fritz since he was imprisoned in a concentration camp. He said it was no different than someone signing away something at gunpoint. The contract could not be valid. That ruling set a precedent and gave heirs the confidence to go after more pieces that were known to have been sold by that art dealer, Caller. That's when this international story came to Ohio. 
New York law enforcement authorities actually went to three states on September the 13th, 2023. Authorities seized from the Art Institute of Chicago a watercolor and pencil drawing called Russian War Prisoner, valued at $1.25 million. They took possession of Portrait of a Man from the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, that one valued at $1 million. And in Ohio, they used a warrant to collect from Oberlin College's Allen Memorial Art Museum, a watercolor and pencil portrait called Girl with Black Hair, valued at $1.5 million. These three pieces bring to nine the number of Egan Sheila drawings that have been returned to Fritz's family. Now, in Chicago, the Art Institute made a statement suggesting they were prepared to fight the seizure of their piece of work. It said, We are confident in our legal acquisition and lawful possession of this work. The piece is the subject of civil litigation in federal court, where this dispute is being properly litigated and where we are also defending our legal ownership. But in Ohio and Pittsburgh, the museums gave up their claims. Ohio's case, in particular, raised some eyebrows. If you haven't seen it, back in 2014, Columbia Pictures released a movie called The Monuments Men. It featured George Clooney, Matt Damon, Bill Murray, John Goodman, and Kate Blanchett. It's an account of how the Allies assembled a group of people to go into Europe and rescue art and other culturally important items during the war before the Nazis could steal them or destroy them. Well, Oberlin College's Allen Memorial Art Museum was once headed by Charles Parkhurst, himself a former monuments man who had helped track down and return art that was looted by the Nazis during the war. Parkhurst is the one who procured the Sheila drawing in 1958. Oberlin College said after they came into possession of their girl with black hair, questions rose up about it but they invested significant resources researching the history of its sale and concluded at that time that it had been lawfully acquired. The college said, It is inconceivable that Parkhurst would have knowingly purchased any artwork that he believed might have been stolen. But as I said, Oberlin is not challenging the claim by Fritz's heirs today that Grunbaum and his wife did not willingly part with it. The heirs have said they intend to put up at least six of the returned Sheilas for auction at Christie's in New York. Mark Porter, Christie's head of restitution, said the sales would involve a commemoration of Mr. Grunbaum's life, and the proceeds will fund a new foundation that will grant scholarships to young musicians in Fritz's name. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.